0: The DSR Listener Survey is now here. Your voice matters and we want to hear it, so please take a moment to fill out the survey and help us make our podcasts even better. You can find a link to the survey in the show description below. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10, 28, two, This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode in a special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Later this year, world leaders will gather in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts will look at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts will feature elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convene to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables are hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing we were very fortunate to have as the chairperson of our fourth roundtable discussion, Alison Agston, the director of the USC Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication and curator at the Wrigley Institute for Environment and Sustainability. This panel, entitled Arts, Activism, and Combating Climate Change, explores the role that artists and activists play in the fight against climate change and the ways everyone can do their part to create a more green future. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation of COP28. However, it should be noted, for this, as for all DSR Network podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent and each of the independent chair people of these roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions now on to the discussion the latest in our special series the road to cop28 we hope you will join us each and every week from now through cop28 to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event and the issues to be discussed there. Thank you.
1: Von Wong, you had some interesting thoughts in the chat that I'm hoping that you can share with the audience.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the elephant in the room that we really need to think about is that we live in an extractive capitalist system. So it's not that we don't want to explore the ocean, it's that we're happy to explore the ocean if there's money to be made. So right now there's a lot of money being poured into deep sea mining, which is being um, marketed as a green alternative to lithium mining on ground. Um, And advocates who are trying to protect the ocean are like, this is one of the few remaining places on the planet that we have not yet destroyed because it's been so inaccessible until now. Um, And so there's a lot of policies that are trying to be put into place to combat this. But you know, in the same way that when we look to space, there's actually a whole bunch of money to be made from satellite data that can be sold. Um, asteroid mining is another one. Um, we also, there, there is also some argument to be said that most of what we know about the planet, uh, is thanks to all these space explorations that are happening. But, but I think really, um, just recognizing that, that ultimately, I mean, like everyone wants a more sustainable solution, but they don't want it if it costs more than 10% or something along those lines. I don't know the exact statistics of it. Um, but but basically, everyone wants things to be good, as long as they don't have, like, better, as long as they don't have to pay for it. Um and, and maybe the sliver of hope is that I think that capitalism is actually indeed moving in a direction that's becoming more and more purpose-driven. We're starting to recognize that we need to live within certain boundaries. We already know, for example, that we are not okay with uh, the cheapest product if it involves child labor, for example. Um, we're... We're starting to be less and less okay with um different amounts of environmental damage it's just that we still haven't figured out how to live within these respectable planetary boundaries and so we, we are seeing an entire rise of like a fourth sector of economics where we're, we're not we're no longer prioritizing the maximization of profits at all costs but rather we're trying to do it in a way that's socially aligned so we have the rise of social enterprises and co-ops and stakeholder capitalism and all these different forms of economies it's it the, the big question is, is it happening fast enough. And I think to bring it back to the arts, um, to, to me, even though a lot of the work that I do focuses on singular issues um, around like overconsumption, I think the, the the common enemy that we're all fighting against is apathy. It's too easy to look at um, these big intractable issues and want to give up and say, oh, there's nothing that I can do. There's not enough time. And I think when we have these targets, like the ones that were, you know, the Paris climate agreements that that have been put into place that we have, we have a hundred percent chance of not hitting. I don't think there's anyone that actually believes that there's a chance in hell that we're going to hit these targets. It actually gets really demoralizing because now you have an entire generation of people that are going to be raised to believe that they have failed. Um And and maybe a more healthy perspective is to think of this from like a 100 or 300 year long timeframe of like, how are we going to make this transition in a way that minimizes the amount of human suffering along the way? Like, how can we make this as painless of a transition as possible? How do we move from where we are today into a world that works for 100% of people on the planet? And and that's not a sprint. That's a marathon. Um, that's, that's where we need to start balancing like short-term public outcries, direct activism with like, what does a career look like um, so that we can actually make what we do sustainable. How do we stay motivated and inspired and hopeful, you know, despite the fact that there are so many terrible things happening um, in the world all around us. And I think that's one of the really important roles that art can play. It's to to help us remind ourselves that we are not alone, that we can work together with people, that when we when we band together we can tr- we can create truly beautiful things, that there are beautiful things to be found just about everywhere. Um, and to find these moments of awe and wonder and unity um to move forward and i don't know about you guys but personally i find it increasingly hard to um like i i personally feel like in my own life i have like a little bit of a crisis of imagination and we see so much of this in the fiction that we consume it's all tending dystopic as opposed to um protopic or utopic which i think was um a lot more the markers of you know the the work of the 1950s and so forth so just want to kick things in that direction
1: (laughs) Well, naturally we have to go to Stanley if we're talking about crisis of imagination because he certainly is not suffering from that crisis and he imagines uh, different possible futures for us. And his hand is raised. Stanley. Yeah,
3: yeah so I, I totally agree with um, Benjamin because we urgently need this kind of like diversity on, on imagination. like. I used to write a lot of like dystopian uh, story, like Waste Tide talking about electronic waste crisis in near future China. And when I showed it to many people, they said, Oh, this is too dark. And it's all about trash. Nobody want to read uh, a story about trash anyways. But like, uh, it, it get a lot of like responses from people around the world, not, not only from China, but also from India's South uh, America and, 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 South Africa and even Southeast Asia. So all these people suffer from it, all this imported trash from the developed countries. So I think we need to build more constructive and positive imagination of the future right now because we urgently need that hope. And interestingly, we're talking about uh deep sea mining and because that's what I'm writing for now. It's all about the sea climate change and not only for the... You know, human uh, who's suffering, like the the climate refugees suffering all all of those like sea mining processing and and extractionism, but also the environment and the animals, the the sea animals, the plants, and even the microbe. And that's like, uh, you know, the whole ecological uh, crisis is basically happening out there, but it's totally invisible. For many people. So we're talking about all the things happen on the land, uh, the landfills and everything, but very few people can step into the, you know, high sea to see what what is really going on there. So I think this is something I really want to picture and demonstrate to the people and especially the younger generation to help them. Okay, this is what we have right now and what we can do beyond the technology. I think more urgently, we need some sociology an economic uh, economy, like imagination, because we need to build a n- new system to help us to think and act beyond the capitalistic, you know, framework. Because right now, as you mentioned, it's like self-reenhancement of all this, like, making profits, uh, maximize the e- e- efficiency, everything. So basically, it's driving to that loop, right? So what we can have, like I try to steal something from the ancient Chinese philosophy, like Taoism, like and even like Buddhism. So so maybe there's something there to help us to think beyond all these binaries, you know. So it's not easy, of course, but we need a lot of like different perspective, like interdisciplinary perspective, to help us to reshape our mindset about the future. So I think yeah, we need a big paradigm shift out there.
1: Stephen, what's your perspective on this?
4: Yeah, I just think uh, the arts has a real role in pushing back against this phenomenon of shifting baselines, and this kind of fits into what what has just been said. And that's where each successive generation has the impression that the world they live in is the normal world. It's the world, the way things have always been. And that that that's a dangerous that's a dangerous phenomenon because because it really I think can be very demoralizing for people. And and if you don't understand how much we've already lost, when I grew up in the 1970s, I grew up in Southern California, we always thought that the, the, the environment we lived in was pristine, but in fact it was already quite degraded back then, even. Um and I think that that the arts have a real role in helping people to understand where we are on that spectrum. And, and and where we might be going and where we've come from. So that's, that's a really important point, I think.
1: Thank you so much. I want to go to Michael. Michael, have you had a moment to think a little bit about the ways the arts and your work in uh, a legal framework might coexist?
5: Um, yes, the law can be very dry, but to try to deepen – My students' understanding of what we're talking about in the classes I teach on climate change law and environmental law, I often do refer to various works of art. I'll often refer to uh, climate fiction novels, such as the work of Neal Stephenson and Kim Stanley Robinson. And now that I know more about Stanley, I'm going to read your work. Um, When talking about the uh, horrors of uh, the possibility of solar geoengineering, uh, which is increasingly discussed. I display a picture of uh, an image of The Scream by Edward Munch, which uh, actually depicted the skies after the uh, eruption of the Krakatoa volcano. And we may see artificial attempts to do something like that. I'll often play songs uh, or at least send a link to a song that I think is relevant. So I find that, that using works of art is really very, very important in helping students understand um, what we're really talking about. The one other thing I'll mention is that last year, Columbia Law School had an artist in residence. Uh, He was a photographer who created various uh, displays relating to racial injustice, Uh, but there are a number of uh, places that have artists in residence and we found it uh, very um, uh, illuminating and stimulating for the community.
1: That is incredibly inspiring. And as a curator who works with, artists who are considering climate change, I feel hopeful. <laughs> uh, I would like to uh, let you know that if you ever need any help or assistance, if you want me to send some images, some links some anything your way for your classes, I would be so happy to do that. That's definitely um, something that I relish in my job is being able to share the works of artists with people who are doing work that doesn't on the outset seem like it's connected, but we all know it is. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have to hop off, um, but your contributions were really impactful. And I know I learned a lot. So thank you.
5: Thanks very much. I have to join a call about a climate lawsuit that I'm participating in. So thanks very much.
1: That's important work. Thank you. Uh, everybody else, stay on.
6: <laughs> Anna. Allison, I think that um, as you guys were talking about um, art and Thinking about monuments as art as well. Um, one of the things that I, I recently did with the Contemporary Arts Center at the De Rosa here in Sonoma on a lake um, that, you know, uh follows the fluctuation of the, the tides in the ocean that's directly connected to it. Um, I put a, a five-foot um installation into the lake that floats that says, like SHH, um, and it's covered by 1,800 gold mirror um, sequins. And so it's constantly chattering the reflection of the environment. But it's ultimately a monument to the future, which is the loss of languages. And I think that, Anne, actually, you were talking about extinction and the loss and thinking about that every 40 days, a language is lost due to climate change, specifically to sea level rise. 577 endangered languages are mostly vulnerable islands around equatorial Africa, Pacific and Indian Oceans, and 7,000 languages are prognosticated to go extinct by the end of the century. So thinking about monuments, it's not something from the past, but perhaps reconceptualing monuments as a warning to the future. And
1: I would really be interested in hearing more from you about your work related to extinct languages.
7: Um, well, extinction I, I mean, I talk about extinction and cultural loss a lot in my work. Obviously, I, I've been very interested in listening to all of you um, because I think there's obviously a lot of common ground, but there's also um, a clear message about a few things. Um, the first one, I think, is um, Why are we trying to raise awareness and, you know, raising awareness is about the Anthropocene, really, because everything you guys have been talking about is all related to, you know, this new era we're living in. And um, it's clear that education is what's coming out the most about it, because our biggest challenge right now is to try and make sure that everybody is, a you know, whether it's on an economist point of view where, you know, you want them to use less fossil fuel and the bicycle and the whole story, or whether it is, you know, about how you know you consume and live your life every day. It's really about People knowing how to do that on their daily life, and you know that's why I mean I, I I've joined this group of experts you know on ocean literacy, which is one could call also ocean culture. Is you know for example ocean on in your daily life is fundamental. Some people will have never seen the ocean, but they don't know that they, you know every second breath they take depends on the ocean. And so there's there's this disconnect um, between us and the planet. And education is obviously fundamental because as we know you know you're going Gonna love what you know, and you gonna, you're gonna protect what you love. I mean, it's you know a classic uh, motto, and and so I think that it's really art, and what we can do as artists is not only um, finding the keys of people's hearts and and being able to communicate with them and talk to them about these issues and these challenges, um, and raise awareness about these in all different ways. And you know, all the artists on this on this on this podcast do it wonderfully but it's also uh, understanding that we're also going through a really big transition. This is probably the biggest transition in the history of humanity. And, um, with transition change came choices and responsibility and, 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 you know, taking on and understanding and addressing this sense of responsibility in all different types of way at the individual level, but also obviously at the group level. So that's policy and policy is key. And so education is also because that will make you vote for the right people because nothing is going to change fast enough, given how fast, you know, the Anthropocene is evolving um, in a negative way, you know, nothing's going to be able to make a real difference. Um, if it's not done through policy, that's really what it comes down to. And so that's really, really important. And I think that culture and artists can really play an impactful role in that, in that way to accelerate that, um, in adaptation, because there's also the fact that we have to realize that we're going to have to adapt and that's really important. And adaptation is key. And, the Anthropocene right now, you know, we've become this geological force is negative, but that doesn't mean that it can't become a force for good. That doesn't mean that we cannot reverse this. We're an incredible species. Um, we go all the way up to the moon and Mars and everything else to make money for sure. Um, we're definitely trying to make money, um, you know, in the deep, in the deep, in the deep waters and trying to do all these things, but, we're also, and that's what, you know, I've really committed to, you know, we're an invasive species, okay, but we're also a race of dreamers, and that's what I'm committed to, and that's what my work is about, and that's what I try <clears throat> and make people perceive and understand, and um, and I think that, you know, in art in that way and culture can really help.
1: You said we are an invasive species, and I've heard some other really incredible turns of phrase today, the kinds of turns of phrase that you hear when you put artists together in a room. I think it was Stanley who called for economic imagination and Van Wong. uh, You talked about a different type of capitalism, a purpose-driven capitalism. I'm wondering amongst all of you, if there are any phrases that you use when you're talking about your work or climate change that you find really resonate with other people.
8: Too late for pessimism.
1: Hmm. It's too late for pessimism. That's a really good one.
6: I have this expression called seismic seconds. And when you hear information or you feel something for the first time, and that impact, that aha moment, that awareness moment that shifts, mm-hmm. um, like st- Stephen said, the, your baseline, that shifting within those couple of seconds that's imperative in changing how you might conduct yourself in the future which is called which i call the seismic second taking a moment to write that down steven yeah
7: i'm 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 much more radical i'm i always ask whether we want our archaeology to be trash
4: what about you steven yeah we we simply ask a question which is what do we want the future to sound like
2: on the pessimism front the one that came to mind is pessimism is a luxury those who are going underwater and only be optimistic. So it's only those of us who actually have the, the bandwidth to be pessimists um, <laughs> are, the, are the ones who are actually lucky. <laughs> I
1: feel like this is, um, we are creating some kind of exquisite corpse in real time of um, the poetics of climate change for better or for worse. Or not? Maybe I will ask you next if you have had a moment to think about my question earlier about ways artists might intersect with economists.
8: Um. Well, here's one of the nerdier things that um, I focus on on my day job as an economist.
1: Wait, you do know that artists uh, are nerds, right? You know uh, that.
8: Uh, of course, yes, of course. Okay. Uh, I just want to be sure. Like we're all, included, all, yes, but,
1: we're uh, all so, on the same uh, page with that.
8: So but so there's such a thing called, right, socioeconomic pathways, as in how do you imagine the future to be, right? Which to be clear is when the likes of us, the economists and so on, are uh, starting to imagine how this future is. Now, okay, here's the thing. The peer-reviewed paper describing these things, right, which yes is crucial, and everyone working on this needs to have read and so on, has not quite reached the audiences that you would imagine <laughs> such a crucial document uh, should. Meanwhile, there is in fact a fiction, a fictional treatment of this. Um, Andrew Dana Hudson wrote uh, Our Shared Storm, a novel of five climate futures came out last year, is actually a riveting read, given its origin. Um, and it is precisely this sort of fiction that Mike Sherar talked about, Kim Stanley Robinson's scenarios and so on around, um, you know, solo geoengineering and how to imagine dystopia, The world In this case, yes, there's certainly a lot of dystopia in it on the, you know, the bad scenarios. There's a lot of visionary thinking on the good scenarios of what this decarbonized, high efficiency, low carbon future could in fact look like, and how much better that kind of society could, would, should be relative to where we currently are. Right? And you know, it's it's that sort of um imaginative writing in this case. That has a real impact. Maybe just very, one very quick example. What was amazing to me when that first happened was, so the New York Times um, hired a climate editor, and you can imagine, you know, how that would work, right? So you, you, you know, maybe a PhD climate scientist who can write, or maybe a journalist who knows a lot about climate science. That climate editor is a graphic artist. Is a graphic designer, someone who basically grew through the New York Times graphics department, and uh, yes, uh, some of the more amazing pieces of journalism um, using data, using graphics, um, have come out of the New York Times as mm-hmm. a result on the climate front. Um, and of course, right, it's also that it's basically figuring out the world around us uh, with you know data journalism in this case but very deliberately choosing the top climate editor of your paper to be someone who is steeped in, good at, very good at graphics, graphic design.
1: That's a good one. I, in part of my job, am a visual arts curator focusing on climate at the Wrigley Institute for Environment and Sustainability at USC. But in the other part of my job, I'm the inaugural director of USC Center for Climate Journalism and Communication. And something I can say with certainty as the field of climate journalism has grown is that now there are not just climate editors, there are not just climate writers, but there are people who are hired specifically to visualize climate change. And uh, hopefully we'll continue to see more of that. Anna. You had a good take on what Grunat just said. How do you think of his comments? How would you contextualize them or respond to them as an artist? Oh, which part? <laughs> I, he said I, many good points. I, love, I loved the, the comments that you um, wrote in the chat while Grunat was speaking. I was cheering for both of you simultaneously.
6: Yeah, Gernot made me think of, and I'm sorry I misspelled it, but science implementation. There, so there is such a, a a field within the science because we have the scientists that create the the methods and the items for humans to utilize and 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 take uh, for the betterment of our health, right? But there is this huge disparity between. What, how good we can be with ourselves and how much we don't partake in that responsibility. So there's a whole science that actually is trying to bridge that distance because people will just not take the diabetes pills, not pay or not go the route to do what's the healthy option for humans and so i when i heard about science implementation i was like what they should hire artists like that's what we are good at like getting people to reconsider things and um one of the things that when gernat was speaking i was like absolutely i mean part of what i do as as an artist is trying to create not only implementation like climate justice implementation but like in implementation like do it through some sort of action and one of the things that um the art in action here this organization san francisco invited me to try and come up with a campaign to get people to sign up for the census because there's a huge demographic within the latino sector the brown and black folks here that are afraid well especially within Um, The Latinx demographic that are afraid because of lack of documentation, fear, um, etc. Right. So there's this kind of decolonization of fear that needs to be bridged in order for folks to to participate and, and sign up because ultimately that is money into communities that is helpful, which actually does affect climate by bringing in those resources by people being counted. So I said, well, I came up with this campaign with a colleague of mine, Erlene Ar- Correa Valencia, and where we did these hoodies and I did a high vis, like Somos Visibles, um, hoodies where we actually went to different points into, we went into communities during COVID and we gifted these hoodies and helped people sign up for the census. And so who's to say that a hoodie, a cool essential wear hoodie cannot be art and it actually, you know, people like at the the stores where they're like ding-a-ding, ding, where like Santa Claus is trying to get people to like donate their quarters, like people were flocking to us outside of stores in the Mercadito in Napa because they wanted these hoodies. And they're like, how can we get one? And I was like, well, you got to sign up for the census. Absolutely. We've never done this, but we'll do it. And we went out into the fields in Napa in the middle of the night, and I was able to sign up two individuals. All to say is that how this is implementation, right? Ultimately, we want those resources for communities that are underserved. How can we bring people towards the solution and not back them away from it? I really appreciate
1: your emphasis on access for communities that might not have the resources to buy an electric car to participate in other environmentally friendly acts I'm wondering if you have any actions like the one you just talked about with the census that are related to climate, or if you are imagining any that we could all help support you with.
6: Yeah, I had been traveling on the horizon. Um, This installation, we went down to Tijuana, to the border of Tijuana and San Diego. I've gone to Miami. We took it to Cuba, to La Habana. And so, and also, in addition, uh, I, I performed this mashup, which was called uh, stoke of the word, uh, where we invited the, the, the poets to learn how to surf. Because I think that again, that ocean literacy and being able to get people enamored with the ocean through an activity, that's really fun. Um, and it's exciting and it's bridging folks to the ocean, which have, as some folks talked about, never have experienced the beach, the ocean, the water that way. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate this platform for us talking, being able to talk about the plethora of ways in which we we bring these ideas forward to different demographics.
1: Does anybody else have other ideas on access, the arts and climate change that they might be able to share?
2: I don't necessarily have a solution, but I just have a thought. And that's, you know, we spend give or take five trillion dollars on marketing every single year telling us that we're not enough that we need more, um, that there's a product or service that can solve for whatever it is that we're struggling with. And, you know, we might, you know, as a, a room full of artists, mostly here, um, think that the arts are very, uh, a powerful tool to help us move from where we are to where we need to be. But those same forces, um, the ones that control the purse strings are hiring those same artists to tell people to buy more things. And, um, uh, and and to actually push the progress in, in I guess the opposite direction, and so you know once again I, I mean I, I think I said this a little earlier about the, the underlying economic structure. I think one thing that we should all focus on as as artists or also consider is to think of um, how are we changing the underlying incentive structure for this kind of work to be created. Because if we don't change that system, no matter how great the art coming out on the sort of let's say climate positive side is looking um, it'll invariably be co-opted by the opposite side and you know we we see this in all the movement making spaces where um, those same tools, the same psychology can be used for one direction and it can also be used in the opposite direction.
1: That's a really great point. thank you. Stanley
3: yeah I would say let's not forget about the children right So because they're the one who will suffer the most from this great, Transition, no matter it's to a more positive future or to a more negative one. So last year I published a book, book is like around nine to twelve. Um, the title was Net Zero Game. So basically, I'm using science fiction to tell a story, which a boy time traveling to the future and witness everything like in a carbon neutrality the society. But how to actualize the thing like technologically and social like reconstruction. And also the daily uh, behavior shifting as well. So I, I received a lot of reviews from the elementary school students and they wrote a lot of like really cute pieces and even like hand drawing all this picture they imagined about the future, sustainability and everything might become real. And this is so encouraging because we can see they're still hopeful, right? Because they, they didn't really see the, brutality of the real world yet, and they still could hold into the imagination of okay, we we have to do this and we can like overcome all this climate change and, you know, uh extinction of uh biodiversities. And I think this is really important that um they really understand the correlation behind the scenes, all this very complex theories and, you know, science and facts and knowledge and data. But how can we help them to build up this positive and constructive, you know, imagination of our future? I think this is very really crucial.
1: What did you learn from those students' comments that maybe you have thought about further and perhaps even incorporated into future work?
3: Yeah, I've been I thinking about it because we had a lot of like small group. Events to encourage people to write something or, you know, do some art um, out of the story, like from the world setting. So I think it could be a collective, you know, um, action with using this kind of sharing world building and allow all these people, kids to have a small piece of the, you know, narrative of, of their own and it's con- interconnected. So we might can visualize all of those imaginations and make it a, a whole, I don't know, installation or like visual arts in some formats. So it could be a wonderful, you know, collective imagination of the future society in a more like sustainable way.
1: I think we all want to see that. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you mentioned the phrase collective action, because we've been talking a lot about what individual artists can do. What about, Artists as organizers of collectives. What about artists as part of collectives? Anyone?
7: Yeah, I'm I, sorry, I don't know how to raise my hand. That's okay. <laughs> so I'm I'm just uh, jumping in. Um, yeah, artists as collectives, actually, I think, you know, it works both ways. There's definitely artists as collectives and, and definitely um, integrating as much as possible the next generation, the, the kids, because that's really important to keep the conversation going. And there's more and more of a disconnect between the previous generations and the next generation coming. They're a lot more angry. Um, so definitely art is a way of, of, of helping and pushing that and permitting them to express themselves. Um artist collectives are fantastic. I've done quite a few, but I uh, would also expand it to um, different field collectives in the sense that, for example, in my case, I collaborate a lot with scientists, anthropologists, sociologists. I, I collaborate with all sorts of people who are either sources of inspiration to me or who help me with my captions or who, you know, who I collaborate with when I do films. Um, you know, I work with tribes all over when I'm doing my installations, my Time Shrine um, installations. So I think that the collective is really, um, and that's obviously, you know, a classic today, but it, it's it's true. You know, it's like as much as sustainable is an overused word, collective probably is as well. But it's true. It, it really is about that. And um, it's really about bringing the collective together, but through different fields, through different th- thought process, intergenerational as much as possible. Possible. And and that's the key, and that's actually what you know. The famous COP twenty eight that none of us are going to is saying right. I mean, that's their motto. That you know, it's all, all. I can't remember the motto exactly, but it's something like, you know, we all have to get together to make things change. You know, and and but it's it's it really is about that, and um and and that's the way forward for sure.
1: Interesting that you mentioned that motto. Do you think that there is anything that the organizers could have done? to make this uh, COP that you all would have wanted to attend? Is it a matter of the financial cost? Is it a matter of the uh, carbon you might emit? I'm curious
7: in my case it's a lot linked to the carbon obviously you know i travel a lot for my my work so that's been like a big conversation for me and kept me up at night a lot on it's it is it is true i mean obviously i I offset uh, everything I do, but I try and travel as much as, as less as possible. And if I do, it's for like a real purpose, like a film or, you know, for like creating this art that I'm bringing back. Again, it's a big conversation with the activists because obviously I don't consider myself as an activist, but I collaborate with a lot of activists. So that's one of the big things, you know, what is worth more? You're not taking the plane to go and do your art or is it worth you? You're bringing back the art and then you're going to be showing it to so many people and creating awareness and, so then, it makes sense. So there, there's there's a lot of that, um, and it's also you know about action and uh, and and making sure that today, because there's so little time left and we're all so busy, that you want to make sure that um, your time is spent in the right way and your actions are spent in the right way to really make a difference. And so that's in, in terms, as far as I'm concerned, what it counts right now in terms of my schedule.
1: Stanley, maybe you want to say why you are going this year.
3: I think I'm going to Middle East because it's also one of the most missing pieces like people didn't get aware of like the deserts, like all this, you know, um uh, very extreme climate change happening there and also the indigenous people there they're using this very traditional shamanic ritual try to rebalancing the relationship between human society and the nature. So I am really curious about those part of the culture. And I think maybe there are some wisdoms and some, you know, some, some knowledge, some indigenous experience we can use and we can elaborate to uh, a, a broader sense of like uh, fighting against climate change in, in modern society.
1: For other people who might be listening that are going to COP, how can they tap into those, um, systems of knowledge that you're talking about. I
3: think, um, of course, the bad thing is you can travel there in person and you can experience it embodiedly, and, uh, because this is what we, uh, Anna talking about, that like somatic, uh, experience. You have to feel it, right? You have to understand like, um, um, how climate change basically changed how we perceive the information through the, through the world around us. And also, I think we need a little bit, you know, wilder uh, imagination, like try to, you know, step into the shoes, I'll not say shoes, but the skins and muscles of other species. So in my next book, I try to imagine how, animals like plants fungi they suffer from this climate change environment and all these pains and all these sufferings might might become a new kind of like you know collective uh communication It's like the awakening of Gaia so it's kind of in between like scientific facts and with um, mythology uh, expression so but I think this is what we need now. Like uh besides all these dry facts, we need something spiritual. We need something like uh holding us to have this strong belief in the change. I think this is something beyond reasoning, beyond the logic we have. So we have to share this is kind of, I call it destructive consensus because There's no way you can, you know, following the old path of a capitalistic uh, system and to make the change happening. But I'm not sure what it is, but we need to break down something. We need to break through the old system to build up new one. But it also, it again, it needs a lot of imagination from different uh, disciplinaries.
1: Stanley is really our futurist in residence today. He has, in fact, held the role of a futurist in residence at a university, at an architecture school, maybe others. Thinking of the future, what is the future that you would like to imagine if I could ask each of you to give your closing thoughts, maybe something that gives you hope related to the work that you're doing right now?
2: Um, I'd like to see a future that was easy and that I feel like today making the right decision is exponent. It's so difficult. Everything's a trade-off. And I wish that the systems were set up for us to be successful as opposed to currently the way they're set up where no matter what decision you make is just kind of choosing between the least harmful solution.
1: I appreciate that.
3: Who else? Amen to that, but maybe
8: on on top of that... <laughs> um what's fascinating to me these days and this is you know putting my nerd hat back on um, it is unimaginable to envision a future where clean energy right solar pv wind isn't dominating isn't right. So we, 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 you can't. And this is, you know, your standard sort of climate economic model, if you will. It is impossible to um, assume to make sort of assumptions that are so conservative as to not have low carbon, high efficiency energy, housing, all of the above, be the default. Sooner rather than later, and I'm coming back to this. But when you have 130 CEOs of major companies, this we basically say: Look, by 2035, we want to be off fossil fuels. Not right. So this is not sort of saying, "Oh, maybe we think you're at the margin." This is literally saying, "Right, IKEA, our entire supply chain within a dozen years, zero carbon." And it's not unimaginable to see how we can get there. Now, still not fast enough. That's the amazing thing, right? Still not enough. But on the other hand, it's this amazing time we live in where Benjamin's wish of having the low carbon, high efficiency be the default. Yes, we are moving toward that. We are racing toward that. And that is this amazing, amazingly optimistic world we live in. Still plenty of nonsense out there. Still plenty of, right? None of this is uh, easy. None of this is, uh, by the way, still not fast enough either. But on the other hand, we've passed so many of these positive socioeconomic tipping points that there just isn't a way back from that either.
1: So it sounds like we are on the right track, but we just need to supercharge, turbocharge
6: our renewable energy train. Who else? Well, I don't want to be the last one, but I think someone else should speak as well. Um, I think for today, in the present, we do need to listen louder to what's happening to the environment. And I think for the future, Um, knowing that 55% of the population doesn't know how to swim and 72% of that population comes from impoverished areas, I hope that percentage decreases. I hope more people get access to be able to experience such a large water mass on our planet that helps us, brings us closer to caring more about our oceans which is a huge part of this crisis so i really do hope that people are brought to the to the literacy
1: of the ocean i'll say that something that encourages me is the volume of dialogue about the ocean in this conversation which i think most people who study and work on the ocean feel really frustrated at the often terrestrial or land based Focused of climate science, communications, journalism, but I'm I'm hearing something really different here today that's encouraging to me.
7: Well, definitely, you know, in the end of the day, we we call this this planet Earth, but you know, it should be called planet ocean. You know, as Anna was saying, it's like 72% of, of our planet. And I would add also that, you know, once we've gone through this portal, we're going through this really powerful portal that everybody has described in different ways during this podcast. But once we've finally gone through this portal, definitely my wish and my hopes is this clean future, a clean future for all of us, for all human beings, certainly, but also for all species. I think that's really, really important and and it's possible. We've got the tech, we've got the knowledge, both ancient and new. So there's no reason why we can't do it.
1: Three cheers for a green future for all living things. Looking at the time, our time is up. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for your contributions, for the way you illuminated such an important conversation. Thank you so much.
0: This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings, to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent, and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris Cutmore. The producer of this podcast was Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network
3: production.